In the weeks leading up to November the 11th, Peel Regional Police wear their poppies as a sign of respect and remembrance for those who fought in countless battles at sea, on the ground, and in the air. We will place wreaths on memorials and take part in ceremonies to honor those Canadians who fought for our freedom, many making the ultimate sacrifice. Democracy and freedom should never be taken for granted. The bravery and dedication of our veterans and serving members will always inspire us, and their achievements are still making a difference to millions of Canadians and others around the world today. I would like to acknowledge all the veterans and the veterans that are here with me today for this podcast. Thank you for your bravery and heroism. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you continue to do today. Peel Regional Police remembers those who have served Canada in the past, and we salute those who continue to serve Canada today. Good day, everybody. That was powerful. That was Deputy Chief Mark Andrews. Thank you, Deputy Chief Mark Andrews. Uh, good day, everybody. I'm Sergeant Joe Cardi, and I want to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. In today's podcast, we will show appreciation to members of our military, past and present. Today, we have three guests, something that we don't usually do. It's usually one-on-one. It's going to be a panel discussion, and all our guests started their career in the military and are continue to serve their communities by being members of Peel Regional Police. And please welcome, let's, uh, Constable Nick Araki. Hi, Serge, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and we have also Constable Chin, Alan Chin. How are you doing? And special, we put you on the spot here, because I don't know if you knew you are going to be on this podcast, Constable Tyrus Darcy. Thank you. <laughs> Last minute addition. Last minute addition to this. So this is going to be a panel discussion. We're going to talk about the military, talk about policing. And before we get started, let's hear about you. Um, Constable Araki. Yeah. Um, tell me about your military before we get started. Sure. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I joined the military in uh, 99, uh, 1998. I joined the Army Reserve in Hamilton. My regiment is the, uh, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry based base there. Um, I started as a, a private soldier, so you know, in the lower the lower ranks, and I, I've moved my way up. I'm currently the deputy commanding officer of the regiment, so the second in command uh, at the rank of major. Uh, so I've worked pretty much at every single job from bottom to top. So you're currently a major in the military? That's correct, yes. And I would basically say that's equivalent to a, what, an inspector in policing? Uh, well... Yeah, it's tough to make the comparison sometimes, but uh, yes, I'm the, I'm the second in command of, it, of an Army Reserve unit of about, uh, I think, 250 to 300 soldiers wow. in Hamilton. Uh, and then uh, sort of during my time, I've been on two deployments, first in 2008 uh, to Afghanistan, and I also deployed in 2017 uh, to Ukraine uh, for six months as well. Well, anyways, our second guest we're going to go we're going to put him on the spot <laughs> Tyrus Darcy welcome thank you how was your military career how did you get started in all this so I got started in 2004 uh, I joined the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry the same uh, regiment as Nick 
and uh, I'm currently a corporal, so second rank up from the working ranks. Uh, working, trying to work a little bit harder now to, to get more of a leadership role. Uh, I just haven't been able to move forward on, on that because I ended up getting hired with Peel in 2007, which kind of stifled my moving up the ranks in, in the military. So with Peel, I started in 2007. Uh, I started at 12 Division. Uh, I went to our regional breath unit as a breathalyzer technician. And I've done a uniform at 21, CIB, Criminal Investigation Bureau at 21. And I'm currently in our incident response training unit. But everywhere too. Mr. Chin, our third of this panel. How you been? Welcome oh. to this podcast. I'm good, I'm feeling old now. <laughs> Now, how did, how did your military career, how, when did you start? I actually started in 1994, joined the uh, 48 Highlanders of Canada, uh, usually referred to uh, Toronto's regiment. Um, with my time with that regiment, uh, I was able to serve um, various operations, uh, Bosnia and uh, Afghanistan, and also domestic operations. I joined Peel in 2000, um, worked uh, uniform in 12, 21, uh, the airport, uh, part of the Earth unit, tactical unit, the protection unit, um, and now currently uh, intimate partner violence. So, you know, been around. You've definitely been around. Um, someone told me you paved the way for military to continue working in the military and Peel. What is this story about? I, don't, I heard about it, but don't know much about it. So, again, I was a serving member um, with Regional Police, because obviously I got on in 2000, um, and also with the Army Reserves. In 2005, with uh, the events in 9-11, um, I had submitted a, uh, a request to leave of absence to serve in Afghanistan. Um, at the time, we didn't have the process to deal with uh, military leave, um, with just the, you know, the regular directive that we had for a regular leave of absence, whether it be, you know, someone requested leave of absence for education or for family purposes that was the leave that the directives that it was followed um, with the process it was approved by a divisional command so you think and usually once it's approved by a divisional command you're okay I signed on a dotted line with my military contract that I'll be serving a uh, 12-month uh, tour um, however it was went up to CMG and it was eventually actually denied and for CMG for people who don't know that their chief management group yes and that was under uh, Chief Catney um, so I had a I had a choice to make: um, serve with the contract I signed, serve my country in Afghanistan, or I had to resign. I actually chose that, and I resigned from Peel Regional Police uh, to carry out my commitment in Afghanistan. Um, however, um, I recognized that uh, there was issues with things in place, and so with the association, I challenged the process and practices that were present. And I believe that uh, had uh, presented inappropriate barriers uh, to the organizational success. Um, and so with the association, we assisted in trying to you know, rectify so what was presented. Because of all this work you've done, you're, you're the first. Yes. That means you could be a Peel Police officer and let's say Canada is going on a peacekeeping mission again, we could go over and serve now. That's you could, correct. You could take a leave of absence from policing. Um, I was going to spend a lot of this on, on the Afghan, Afghanistan war, but I want to talk about, you mentioned Bosnia. You yes. served in Bosnia? Yes, in 1997 to 1998. What was the, the Bosnia War about for the audience? Um, so at the time you have the former Republic of Yugoslavia, at the time you have Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
were both fighting wars of independence, sometimes against each other, other times against the Serbians. Um, at the time, obviously, the world looking on, uh, and then you had different atrocities occurring, the world stepped in, um, you know, to assist. Um, the conflict in the Balkans began in 1991, after the uh, dissolution and fragmentation of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Well, you really know your stuff. <laughs> Well, I've had, uh, actually, I've done presentations with schools. Okay, so, so what, what was the role of Canada? In, in, what, like? So as part of NATO, um, and whether it was I-4 or S-4, went into Yugoslavia, former Republic of Yugoslavia, and basically as peacekeepers, right? There was the um, the accords that were agreed, agreed upon, and we were there as part of NATO to enforce these uh, peace agreements, basically, and to keep the, the warring factions and sides uh, at bay and try to actually, because we've gone in, I went in in 97, 98 after the war and tried to um, re rebuild and actually re um, people that were displaced, have them come back into their communities. Wow, so what you say is the success for uh, um, our Canadian military in yes. Bosnia? Yes, that, that mission was a long mission. Um, I think it was 19 plus years. Um, it was a success. Uh, because now you have functioning governments, uh, they hold elections, um, and they participate in, in world events. Yeah. Um, actually, while I was in Afghanistan, there was actually troops um, from Croatia that were part of that commitment. Wow. So that, that shows you how far you know, they, they've come. My question to you, all three of you, is I, I think what the community would like to know is, how do you tell your loved ones that you're going to Afghanistan or you're going to Bosnia? Like you just come home one day and say, hey, by the way, guess what I'm going tomorrow? Like that, that's not an easy conversation. No, it's not an easy conversation, but it's not a, you don't surprise them because usually conflict would start and the government will send in um, your forward troops, right? Your, your forward elements, right? To do their reconnaissance on the ground, to see what we need. Are we gonna actually put, put in a main battle group? So it's in the news, the government's talking about it, and guess what? But the government's talking about it. It's, you're the, talking about it at your table, at your yes. dinner table. And so it's conversation because my mom would are you going to be going to Afghanistan? They I'm, must have been nervous. Yeah. And I said, well, I'd like to, but I got, first I work with Puget Police. I have to see if they actually allow me to. Yes. Go to Puget. And, and, you know, so it wasn't a surprise conversation, but I think when I actually did say I signed on the dotted line and I am going to Afghanistan, it was like, do you really want to? <laughs> so. How did you do it, Nick, with your family? Were they like thumbs up, this is great, or were they nervous? No, I, I don't think I was getting thumbs up when I was uh, going. They, they were very uh, apprehensive, as I'm sure you can imagine, but they were they were very uh, they were very supportive. Um, you know, like like Al was saying, I don't I don't think it was a secret in my family that I wanted uh, to serve my country, um, and I had been in the Army Reserve for about. I guess almost 10 years at that point, I've been a police officer for two or three. So they, they knew that it was something I, I wanted to do. So they, they knew it was sort of a possibility. Um, so yeah, nervous, but I explained to them why I was doing it and, and, and I gave them as much information as I can and they were uh, they supported me along the way, so. So you, um, Afghanistan, obviously you're Bosnia, Afghanistan to Al and uh, Tyrus, you, you never went overseas, have you? No, I've never been overseas. Um, I guess you can technically call it a deployment, but it was 
domestically with uh, the GHG20 Summit. <clears throat> oh, that wasn't an easy I, one. <laughs> I went, well, still... <laughs> I went to Huntsville, uh, and we the role there was just to be outside of where the police cordon okay. was. So uh, that's, I guess, technically a deployment, but not in the same light. Um, but no, I haven't deployed overseas. So is your training differently? Like, when you guys get deployed, does... Al and Nick, do you receive different training than, let's say, Tyrus, when who you didn't, or is it the same? No, um, you do have um, your basic warfare skills that you will cover, but then your you will train according to your mission and what's going on. So my training when I first deployed to uh, Bosnia, um, we really did traditional um, training, you know, combat teams with tanks, uh, with all your combat team elements. Um, whereas my deployment to Afghanistan was that, but also dealt with, um, you know, a lot of, uh, we had cultural integration, uh, training, um, you know, going into other, other aspects than war, right? So you were especially trained because you're going to Afghanistan with certain things, like the culture and all that. Obviously, Tyrus, you weren't because you weren't going. That makes sense. Uh, where were you stationed, uh, Al, in Afghanistan? Um, so I actually got stationed um, at several camps throughout my tour in Afghanistan. So you're all over the country? All over the country. So actually, my first deployment was actually into uh, the support element, uh, which was Camp Mirage, which initially was stationed out of um, uh, Dubai. Then I then deployed into Kabul uh, in the northern part. Once that camp closed down, I got uh, relocated and attached uh, to units in Kandahar. So I worked with the Air Force in Mirage because I was the main support element. Um, worked with uh, 2RCR, uh, Echo Company, uh, in Kabul. And then I got reattached to the 3rd Battalion uh, PPCLI, Princess Patricia's Light Infantry, um, in the southern part in Kandahar. And so I did a lot of flight time with C-130 Hawks going in and out, um, and then to the different various camps. Wow. Nick, where were you deployed? Where were you stationed? So I was in uh, Kandahar province in a, in a district of the province called Zari district, so about 30 kilometers outside uh, Kandahar city uh, to the west of it. I was uh, My job was uh, very, I did a similar training uh, to Al, we call it pre-deployment training where we move into a level of of high readiness um, and I also had some specialist training because my job very early on I was identified as an army reservist who was also a police officer so they uh, moved me into a role where I was going to mentor the Afghan uh, police uh, there so I was sent to uh, a Ford operating base uh, called Ford operating base Wilson and I was responsible for a platoon of uh, Canadian soldiers uh, who were basically uh, uh, put into small uh, detachments to work hand in hand with the Afghan police on operations uh, for about seven months. How do you stay in touch with your family and friends? When, is it like the old, like you're right? Are you allowed to use your phones, and, or is it mail service? It's it's a bit of it's a bit of old school mail. Um, uh, where I was, and, and everybody has different experience. It depends on the mission. A little bit of every once in a while, you you get a phone call, uh, and or a, sorry, an ability to make a phone call. Um, or a lot of uh, emails or even a lot of regular snail mail. Getting, I remember always getting a package was sort of the highlight of, 
You know, you sort, you sort of, morale lives and dies on when the next mail uh, run is coming in with packages from home. Is, is it true they had a Tim Hortons in there? Not where I was. <laughs> um, I was pretty far okay, from the Tim Hortons. But that, no, it, there was one there um, that at Canada Airfield, the famous Tim Hortons was there, but I wasn't uh, near there, so I only got to experience it a couple times. Yeah, the Canada Airfield, again, major base, uh, one of the main uh, support bases for the U.S. and for the troops. So you had um, Tim Hortons, but you also had all the other U.S. chains. So I think there was Burger King, uh, there was Starbucks, you know, Taco Bell. So, mm. oh, again, the, yeah. the U.S. recognizes that what can we do to keep troops' morale up? And yeah. if it's just making sure they want a burger or a coffee and that keeps morale up, we'll, we'll do it. Yes, I remember right. uh, during my education for World War II, the Americans, they all had to have Coca-Cola mm -hmm. so that would get delivered across these Coca-Cola to make them feel mm -hmm. like they're at home. Uh, how was the physical environment in Afghanistan? Because I know if, if there was a war in Canada, people had to dress for the, the cold. Did you guys know going in what the environment is? Or did they, I, I'm assuming because the Army's really prepared. Well, yes, that's part of your pre-deployment training. So you do go over uh, what to expect. Um, again, you want to know, and again, weather, that's one thing. You, you go into insects, what type of animals you might encounter, stuff like that, because again, it is a different part of the world. Um, for me, you know, we went, uh, it was okay, we went from the springtime in Canada, going into Afghanistan, but again, that went from, you know, your, you know, 15, 20 degrees to all of a sudden 51 to 60 degrees wow. Celsius, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a major change, and then you get into Afghanistan, you have the elevation now to, to deal with, and uh, you know, it takes a while for you to acclimatize, right, to the elevation, the thinner air, but you do, right? You're there for a while, so you do acclimatize. And Tyrus, you're in Canada during all this, but you could get deployed any time. You don't know when that's coming, if it does come or doesn't come. So is, mentally, are you preparing that, that I might be going next if they ask on me? Not so much as a reservist, especially being a, a police officer. As a reservist, it's a voluntary uh, process to go in and, and apply to go overseas. Um, but also being a police officer, that that part generally comes first. To So I, I know like our, our unit recognizes police officers as needing to stay at home if, say, something happened within Canada. But as a reservist, I don't... I'm not forced to go overseas at this point in time. Okay, uh, this is a tough question to ask, but I, I, I know I have to ask it. And this is for the whole panel. Did you guys witness any casualties or suffer, or suffer any injuries yourself during your tour? Let's start with you, Nick. Uh, well, so I was in a Florida operating base, so I was going on operations with the, uh, the Afghan uh, police and I also worked with the Afghan uh, army with some other Canadian mentors so we were on a, a lot of operations so um, I was lucky I came through uh, uh, unscathed but I worked with a lot of uh, brave uh, men and women in my platoon and uh, there were some casualties and that's part of unfortunately the uh, the mission um, so yeah I, I there were ups and downs and uh, of the mission, and that's that was part of it. Yes. Al, um, when we were part of uh, the Royal Canadian Regiment in uh, Kabul, um, we worked with uh, Private Ron Scott Woodfield, 
And when we moved to Kandahar, um, sadly, there was a, a vehicle rollover with his lav, and he ended up dying. Um, so our, our platoon uh, did suffer uh, casualty uh, when I was there. And we, there was general casualties with other troops. No, so my, my section, my platoon, were able to make it out uh, unscathed. But at the same time, we did encounter, because we worked with US troops, um, we did encounter that. It's not easy. Uh, what are some of the things you remember most about your deployment? Let's start with you, Al. Deployment to Afghanistan? Yeah, um, let's stick with that one. Stick with that Is one. it the okay. Taco Bell that you have Americans? <laughs> um, you know what? The uh, It's just the living, the, the way the Afghans lived. Um, you were there, and they literally will... I wouldn't say mud huts, but it is. They, they make mud bricks and they put their homes together um, and they live very simple lives. Um, it was sad to see when you have kids drinking from, uh, like mainly one of the main sewers coming down. They'll be putting bottles in the, in, into the sewer where there's running water and that's where they got their drinking water. So, you know, we would throw bottles of water. and But again, it only comes to so much balls you could throw, right, to kids in, in Afghanistan, in, in Kandahar. Um, so projects like getting, digging wells and getting wells functioning to have running water, that actually does highlight and kind of bring to light why we were there, right? Because yes, we have a mission, we're there, you know, dealing with, um, you know, active uh, terror cells. Um, we had an active insurgency going on when I was there. Um, but at the same time, we're trying to help the people. Um, my 2IC actually was uh, one of the first females uh, to deploy. And, you know, she was used heavily in going out with the medical teams and providing assistance um, to the local population, to women, to women and children. And, and that, that, that's huge. Yeah, you have a lot of memories. How about you, Nick? What do you remember most? I, I remember a lot. Like, it was... Uh you know, we're going on over a decade since I've been there, but uh, it's it's the experience of going to Afghanistan, something you carry with you uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, I was thinking of having some memories just while I was talking, because it brings up, when you talk with other veterans, it brings up all sorts of memories. Um, I remember the the men and women I served with, because um, you're there in, in, in challenging circumstances for a long period of time, that, that builds a camaraderie that that is, is very difficult to replicate. And there are a lot of great Canadians from all over the country, different backgrounds, um, different experiences, all just trying to make, uh, to serve their country and also make another country, Afghanistan, uh, a better place and, and to make a difference in that, uh, in that nation. Um, I remember a lot of the challenges, um, you know, you, joining the army or, or the army reserve, you get to do, you get you're made into a better person to be a better person. And I got to do things in Afghanistan uh, that I would never get to do uh, in, in Canada, uh, doing challenging things, making decisions, um, leading, leading great Canadians on, on operations. Um, and you meet uh, the, Afga the Afghans themselves, um, all the citizens I work with. I was in a very, more of a rural environment. Um, in the area I worked, and you meet you met a lot of people that were just also 
the Afghan police I, I work with also just trying to make their country a better place and there were some remarkable uh, uh, local Afghans that I met during my time as well. Good stories. Um, how, did, how, did, how do you describe how you felt when, you're, when it's over, when you're coming home? Um, it's it, it was a tough transition because you are in, you know, I was there for seven months. I did eight months of pre-deployment training, like Al did before I, I even got there. So you're you're having this mindset, uh, this you know uh, this warrior mindset, um, this mindset that you're on operations to keep yourself safe, um, uh your the soldiers that you're working with your subordinates and then you come home and you're back to sort of regular Canada and uh, you know a, a country and people that are very supportive of them of, of, of soldiers and the Canadian Armed Forces but may not understand the experiences that we've uh, been dealing with so it's a, it's a tough it's a challenging transition um, I, I can think of a lot of uh, a lot of memories of coming back but it, it's you know, I had a supportive family. The military is very, does a lot of hard work to, to re, to, to get us back into normal Canadian life. And uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a bit of a transition, but uh, everybody gets used to being back home, I think. Now, this is a hot topic, but I have to ask it. And uh, I'm not gonna put you guys on the spot because we know what happened recently in Afghanistan with the decisions the governments have made. We're not here to second guess them or tell them what, what's right or what's wrong because we don't have all the information, but I'm going to put it to you guys in a little narrow vision here. Your time period in Afghanistan, do you think that was successful or not? Let's go with you, Al. I, I believe for my time, again, I was there for seven months, and um, our main mission was, again, we're, we're hearts and minds, right? Because, again, that's, you know, we've learned that we're in a foreign country. We're doing you know, military operations, you need to have the people, the locals on your side. Uh, again, so we talked about providing medical needs uh, to women and children, um, but also farming, right? So again, there, there are warlords, they grow poppy, and right, that's a huge part of the drug trade coming out of Afghanistan and that part of the world. Canada recognized that and said, you know what, we'll pay you more to grow wheat or corn. And so got them in Give them, gave them incentives to grow different crops, right? And crops that they could use, crops that they could export. And that was successful. That was part of the mission that was over there. Um, so yes, for the narrow timelines, when we were there, we were given our, our mission statements and we were able to accomplish it and build for future operations going forward. You met your objectives. How about yeah. you, Nick? Uh, I think, I think uh, my time there was successful. Um, like we were talking earlier, um, you know, I worked with some great people, great Afghans that were, you know, my job was to make them better police officers uh, and bring my experiences uh, to them. And uh, I met a lot of dedicated uh, Afghan policemen that were, were working hard to make their um, their country better. Um, and and you know, I, I, I dwell on some experiences I had from other military members I worked with, I only went to Afghanistan once, but several Canadians went multiple times, and they they could see the progression and improvement of the country uh, as they went, and and uh, those are the things I I remember, like like Al I think mentioned, you know, women going to school, um, improvements to the economy, um, better trained 
um, security forces, which is what we were working with. Um, so I, I do believe that we had an impact uh, for the better when we were there. Being in the military and, and being on going to these foreign lands and what you guys had to go with, go through, how does your time in the military affect you? Let's start with, uh, this is all three of you. Like it's the train, everything is different from the average person. Does, does it change who you are? Um, I don't know if it, it does change you, um, but again, that goes into just this job of policing, there's certain events that may occur and it will change you as a police officer. Um, so just like uh, the military, if you're deployed, whether it's domestic operations or international operations, um, you could have events that will occur and being very dramatic events and it will have that impact on you and will change you. And so you just kind of, you know, you get the support you need and you deal with it. So events like that, you kind of will carry with you and then sometimes you will play back in your mind when you have a, you know, maybe a bad day. It, no, it, you realize, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it wasn't that bad. My day wasn't that bad compared to what I've experienced. There's nothing wrong saying that. Right. <laughs> so. um, Nick, has it been difficult to communicate to family and friends about your military service? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's uh, difficult, but uh, it's it, so, you know sometimes it's sometimes it is uh, you know you gotta you, you gotta sometimes it can be a, a challenge. Like we we were talking earlier, um, I, I draw similarities to my time as a police officer um, when you know you're you're a police officer and you're meeting your non-police friends and they want to hear about your experiences as a cop, and uh, you know they're coming at it with maybe a Hollywood. TV sort of perspective, but it's you want to tell them, you want to share your experiences and tell you what real life policing is about, and you, and it's a sim, very similar to the army. Um, I think where you're, you're, you really want them to understand the things you experience and understand understand the job that you do, but um, um, it's 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 a challenge for those that audience to maybe understand it because they don't have the experience, they don't share the same experiences that you do, they don't have that perspective. Um, but I think it's very important to make that to make that effort because uh, uh, just like in policing, um, it's important that that uh, we communicate. Our, you know, we try hard to communicate those experiences and articulate them so the public we serve or, or just family and friends understand understand the the job that we do and and the importance of it. Now, all three of you guys are members of PRP. Obviously, you all became cops. You're serving the community again. Um, Tyrus, military and policing, is it the same thing? Yes and no. Um, I, th I think there's a lot of similarities between the two. Uh, and coming from a training background within Peel, um, the training aspect is very similar. So the, the, the makeup of how training is conducted and the makeup of, of how that message is, is uh, put across and, and creating uh, the environments needed to create as much realism as possible for whatever officers or soldiers need to encounter. Uh, th very similar in, in how that's created. Uh, but it's also different. There's different um, interests, right? Uh, a soldier is, uh, on behalf of Canada, going to um, defend those interests. Uh, whereas in policing, we are here to protect the public. 
pace. So um, very, very competing, or a lot of competing interests in, in that. So that's how it, it would differ. It, it does differ a bit. Uh, do you find, and uh, this is a loaded question for all three of you, <laughs> do you find military personnel make good cops? Let's go with you, Al. You're giving me a smile here. <laughs> um, overall, yes, because um, you have basic training and the, the military gives their soldiers the tools. So they'll train them properly to make sure that they can accomplish their job requirements. And so, you know, so Tyrus says, you know, he's the corporal. He's been given certain levels of education and training, but he said he's looking for leadership. The, the military go, okay, you identify yourself, you want to be, you know, a junior leader, we'll put you in the courses required, and they will give him all the training required so he is successful in doing so that. So he's going to have all these courses coming to policing. That's right. On and how to be a leader and how to... Right. So I have 26 years of policing, uh, rank of sergeant, uh, you know, multiple courses in regards to leadership and, and operational deployments. So my experience obviously will be a little bit different to someone who has was a corporal in the army for four years, right? It's just based on your experience, courses, and your education. But overall, yes, because the military does provide the training, uh, the education, uh, to, prepare, to prepare good soldiers, right? And it, that's easily translated into policing, because policing now, we could just build on that. So, Nick, being into the military, becoming a cop, is this an easy transition? Is it, is it, does it help you become a better cop, or is it? that training did not help you at all. No, I, I think it, it does help you become a good police officer, but Tyrus and Al mentioned a lot of the the important differences, and I don't I don't think it's hard um, to transition at all, I do, but I do think uh, we all recognize it is a transition because, uh, and, it, and as long as you recognize that transition from military service uh, to serving your community as a police officer and the, and the various differences, um, but at the same time, bringing the strengths that you bring to the table as a military member, um, you make you can make a very good police officer. That you know that that training and experience and leadership, that that teamwork attitude, um, your sense of discipline, your sense of duty and responsibility and public service, all those things um, that many people have, but military members have in yeah, I agree. in troves uh, makes um, and, and you recognize the differences between the two institutions. Uh, can make you a very good police officer. Just to add to that, one of, the, one of the other things that I think soldiers or military members will bring is knowing your role, because in the military, everyone has a role, and that's important, that's uh, really impressed upon you, and you know your role and what you need to do to be part of a bigger team to accomplish that mission. And so when you transition to policing, you know, Nick could be a major, right? Second in command of a, a military unit. Right. Nick could be a sergeant in charge of a platoon, a section command, but I transition here, I'm a constable, and, and again, I recognize my role as a constable, and I'm able to do that job, right? And then I think that's where it, it really helps because two different elements, right? One can be in a position of authority, one, you're the follower as opposed to the leader, but you know your role. That's a good point. And you're able to fulfill your role in the bigger picture in, in fulfilling that mission as a police officer. So I'm gonna go this to Nick then. Is that a hard adjustment? You come from being a major, am I correct? That's right, yes. And now you're not a, obviously, um, I don't know how to put this, you're not a, you're not a sergeant in Peel. Nope. 
So, not, not yet anyway. <laughs> so is, is that a big adjustment from going, making all these decisions, making all these stuff for, for the military, and coming here and taking, I guess you still are a leader, but I don't know how to phrase this right. Is it an easy adjustment or a hard adjustment from putting your, uh, I'm a supervisor hat on to I'm not a supervisor? No, I, I don't think it's ever been hard for me personally. Um, I've always, uh, like we've been talking about it, it, there is a difference and there is a transition between mili- military service uh, and being a police officer. So again, the military, you learn there's a, just like in policing, there's a, there's a rank structure, there's a bit of a, a command structure and a hierarchy. And uh, I recognize um, with, my, with my rank and experience in PO Police, uh, I, I have a, a rank structure and I know where I fit. Um, you know, I've had, uh, we always joke, I, I had the privilege of serving with Al in the tactical unit for a long time. Uh, and in the Army, I may outrank him, but in the tactical unit, he was the boss. And I would I would follow his instruction as an experience pretty much anywhere. So, you know, we military members know know how to transition back and forth most you of the time. You have good self-awareness when you do all that. <laughs> That's really good. And if I forgot, I would probably remind you pretty quick. <laughs> Can a military approach to training improve police skills? Because the military, they train awful lot. And I notice, I, I, I'm just one person here, I'm not in the military, but I notice uh, I play football at a high level. When you play football, you're always training, 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 game day Saturday. And usually we have a lot of success from the training. And that's when I think police should go more training. I don't know if it's just me, I don't know if, what you guys think about this, but Ty- Tyrus, you're in the training. Do you think we, we should have more training so this way it'll take away the stress, it'll take away the... Under stress, no one makes good decisions. So the more training you have, the less stress you have. So you do, do you agree we, sh- we should have more training in police like they do in the military? I, I think the training, the way it's structured in the military versus policing is... The way it's structured is similar in that we're trying to create that high-stress incident so that we get elicit that response. However... We are doing the job day in and day out, and we get those stimuli. We go to a car accident, and it's stressful because there's a lot of things going on. But we do that so often, and that, that is essentially on-the-job training, per se. Um, the, the, high, the high-risk, low-frequency things, like say, for example, there's a, a gunpoint arrest that's needed to be done. Those are things that maybe more approach in our training environment would elicit that to be uh, a, maybe more training on that would be helpful just to for that stress response because it doesn't happen so often right so I think the way the military does it is you know, the crawl walk run methodology right so start start slow move a little faster move a little faster and then you'll gain all of that stuff and then become better at all of the competencies that you need to accomplish I think the training does help I think policing is uh it's extremely tough job, I, and I don't know if you guys agree with me. Maybe because of your background, you're you're more trained, so it might become easier. And that's why I think military personnel do make good police officers, in my view. Because I look at it, every military person I've worked with is always under less stress, always more calm, and works as a team. And I think that's the key to policing. I think we do have to go that kind of route, maybe not the total route, because obviously I do agree with Tyrus, what you said, and Al and Nick, that it's, it, it is a bit different, but I think it's something we have to put in is more police training. We have to get rid of the stress and all that stuff in policing so we can make better decisions. 
But military has also done a lot of stuff for police. I think we see a lot of police products and tactics that are that we use that's come from the military. Can you guys give me some examples of that? Sure. Um, well, when I deployed to Afghanistan, you had something called a go bag, right? You had all your essentials and basically a knapsack, heavy duty, and away you went. When I got into the tactical unit, officers were still pulling around equipment in Pelican cases. Um, so again, that was something I noticed at all. Pretty simple. Why are we pulling around our gear in Pelican cases that are heavy, cumbersome? Why not go to the go bag? And that's what I was introduced, and actually I think it's still used today in the tactical unit. We still use the, the go bag. So very simple thing. Um, to go even further, we were able to train um, with uh, members of uh, GTF2, right, the tactical unit, and taking lessons learned, and the way they trained, we're able to um, implement it with the tactical training, which then actually trickled down to, I know, with, uh, with, with uh, Tyrus now, and it's now service-wide. And that's one, one of the, um, the stress-related um, uh, responses to an incident, right? So the, the blindfold, they remove the blindfold and you have to deal with that. That, we were first introduced, at, introduced to that type of training with the tactical unit when we worked hand-in-hand -hand with GTF2. And so here it is now actually being done service-wide. So, so it does does have yeah. There's a lot of stuff. And it does trickle down. There is a lot of information. Um, one of the things that I think we need to adopt more is lessons learned. The military is good on that. What is our lessons learned from, again, whether it be a small mission, whether domestic operations, international operations, lessons learned, and is always building on it. I think we just need to, again, we do do that, but it needs to we need to hone that a little bit more. I think. I think we have a lot of stuff like we on our vest now we carry a tourniquet that came from the military I'm assuming. Yes. So we we've adopted a, a very military style course in, in casualty care. It's because we deal with a lot of trauma within our region. Uh, so we do offer training to officers that is very similar to what the military uh, gets in terms of uh, a little bit higher level care of, of first aid training, including tourniquets. So that's that is something that the military has influenced. And that and that's had a uh, that that's stemmed from the the war in Afghanistan um, because the training that Al, Al and I received when we went included a lot of that uh, training, and that's had a direct uh, benefit, I think, to the community because uh, that that training to deal with trauma during critical incidents it, it's not only um, protecting police officers but public the public on the street um, there's been many cases I I'm sure all of us have of uh, things that we call them tourniquets which is a, a first aid thing that we all carry uh, now on the street that have been used to save lives uh, at calls on the road with the, with the public um, quick clot which was something we carried in Afghanistan which is a clotting agent to help help us stop bleeding all things that police officers uh, now carry as standard equipment. Yeah, we do carry that, those now. That help, uh, or the modern version of them that we help, that we are able to use and are part of our toolkit to help the public on uh, for calls for service. That's true. I'm going to put you guys on a spot now. What do you think is your the best quality of an officer should have? Is it uh, being um, able to handle stress? Is it making decisions? Is it how they talk to the public? There's so many where we could go with this. And everyone has a different answer. So 
So I'm going to go with you, Tyrus, you number one on this because you're shaking your head. Why me? <laughs> I think the ability to to connect with a, with a person, whether it's a stressful incident or it's um, or it's it's just a regular interaction on on the street, being able to talk to somebody in a in a positive manner, just it it holds so much value in being able to whether it's de-escalate the situation, but being able to connect with that person in some way um, does a lot more than say having to having to resort to using force because it's been that's the the last resort kind of that we have. Using your words is uh, someone I guess coined it as verbal judo or whatever that the, <laughs> the thing is. Judo. But but there is something to be said for having that tact and and being able to to talk to the public. That's probably the best quality in a in an officer. I'm 100% behind you on that. Does anyone have... Uh... I agree with him. Um, just from my 22 years of policing and then my experience in the military, anyone that's able to communicate their message and actually de-escalate a situation just by conversation and listening, um, it, it's, it works, right? And it's to the advantage to everyone that's involved. Um, and so if you're able to, again, bring yourself to a situation, actively listen, right, and then communicate, you know, what's required so that it's understanding. Many times you've just resolved uh, the issue at hand. And I think that that's, that's huge. I totally agree. Now, Nick, last question I want to ask you. If you're 17, if I'm 17 years old and I come to you, I want to join the military, what would you tell that individual? I would say uh, if they are interested in it, and they, I, I would, I would get them to research. Uh, I would, I would encourage them to research the various opportunities that uh, uh, the military has to offer, because um, there are a lot of different ones, a little, a lot of different jobs, a lot of different um, routes that a person can take. Um, and then I would, I would encourage them uh, to do it. It's, it's. I joined at seventeen in high school, like uh, my friends here did, and uh, twenty. 23 years again and change I haven't looked back it's 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 given me so many opportunities uh, to, to serve my country which was really important to me to serve my my community uh, and it's challenged me to be a better person and be a better Canadian and given me skills and uh, opportunities um, that you know that led into my career in policing as well so I, I would if somebody's looking to serve their country be a better person uh, get skills and uh, be challenged, um, then I would encourage it for sure. Would, would you all recommend people to join the military? Or how about even policing? Let's go with policing. Oh. Uh, what, would you, what would you tell a 17-year-old who wants to be an officer right now? At 17 years old, I actually will tell them, um, get your education, uh, get some life experience. Um, policing, it is a long career. Um, so I had one uh, young corporal in the military. He wanted to go on tour, and he also wanted to become a police officer. And I told him, you have the opportunity to do an operation deployment internationally. That's something that, that experience, you can't replicate. And I, I told him to do it before he became a police officer. And he actually uh, did go, go on tour, and then he, was, he then came back and was able and successful becoming a police officer with Toronto. And But he came back and said, you know what, thank you for telling me to take that opportunity to go on deployment. Because you're right, it's an experience that you can't replicate. So, and that's just not military. I would tell anyone that's 17 years old, there's a lot of life experience to be had. 
Um, you don't need to start policing at 17. Um, go out, experience the world, live a little, and then uh, <laughs> That's great come advice. back and then in, you know, start your policing career. That's great advice. Um, like from talking to you three today, I think anybody who wants to join the military, it's a good career. Anyone who wants to join police, it's a good career. You can do both, like what you guys are showing. And with Remembrance Day coming, I just want to say, just for the people who don't understand what Remembrance Day is all about, uh, we recognize Remembrance Day every November 11th at 11 a.m. It marks the end of the First World War, and it's an opportunity to recall all those who served in Canada's defense. On Remembrance Day, we acknowledge the courage, the sacrifice of those who served our country in all our wars. It's not just the first war, it's the second war, it's the Korean War, it's Afghan, it's all of them. We acknowledge our responsibility to work for the peace they fought so hard to achieve. And for for my guest today, uh, which is Tyrus, uh, um, Al, and Nick, thank you for your, and to all veterans, thank you for your bravery and heroism. Thank you for your service. and. Thank you for all that you continue to do. Thank you guys for coming here today. Thanks a lot.